Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and today, motherhood. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Bridget Schulte. I'm a journalist, author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time, and director of the Better Life Lab, the Work, Family, Justice, and Intersectional Gender Equity Program at New America. And you've also got Angela Garbez, author of Like a Mother and the new fabulous book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Angela will be joining me after the break. But first, let's talk about motherhood. In the United States, we're often told that being a mother, a parent, a caregiver is the most important work in the world. The language we use in politics, in advertising, the media, and national discourse reveres mothers and caregiving with politicians boldly proclaiming that we are a nation of family values. And at the same time, that same conversation, the same cultural norms and perspectives trivialize it or ignore mothers as invisible altogether. Mothers and caregivers as fully realized human beings are virtually absent from many of the movies and TV shows that shape our culture. And when they do come into view, mothers often show up as mommy bloggers, bad moms, exhausted and trying to get away from their pampered kids, or mean girls on the playground arguing endlessly about the proper stroller, or they're caught up in stereotypical no-win mommy identity wars about whether one should devote themselves selflessly entirely to one's family or selfishly choose to go work outside the home, as if mothers have a choice. Most don't. In truth, the reality for mothers is quite different. Those same politicians who extol the virtues of family values and proclaim to value mothers in care, it turns out that they only value the kind of mother who can exist in mostly privileged white, middle, and upper-class circles, the kind who can live a life that many of these politicians, majority male, white, and increasingly octogenarian, did or do, with a leave-it-to-beaver breadwinner going off to work who can support an at-home homemaker. But the majority of the rest of us didn't live like that, couldn't, or wouldn't want to. In truth, being a mother, a parent, a caregiver, it's hard in the United States. It's much harder than in our peer competitive economies. It's much harder than it has to be. It's so hard, in fact, that young people in America say they're choosing not to become mothers, fathers, or parents. And the COVID pandemic has only made it harder. And what most people don't realize is that we've chosen to make it hard. Our politicians and our business leaders have chosen not to support mothers and families and caregivers. And yet our national conversation would have us believe that these are individual choices. And if we can't get it together, if we're exhausted and stressed, time-starved or hanging on by a thread, it's our own fault. And all we need to do is just, I don't know, work harder or chill. And that's just wrong. Caring for others truly is some of the most important and valuable work there is. It is truly the source of joy, connection, and human happiness that makes life worth living. It shouldn't be so hard. I'm pissed. I'm pissed that it's so hard. Angela Garbus is pissed. The way we think about and support mothers needs to change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we're going to dig into the costs of motherhood and Angela's book, Essential Labor. 
Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too. Our recent topics include the history of sex, abortion on state ballots, and the hidden costs of breast implants. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome, Angela. I cannot wait to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Bridget. I'm excited to speak with you, too. So one of the first things that really strikes me, I think, about both of our work is that, you know, we think of mothering or parenting or caregiving in the United States as like, oh, we're this nation of family values. This is something that we really value. And mothering is almost seen as sacred, the sacred duty. And yet mothering, parenting, caregiving is so hard. We make it so hard. And you make that point in your book as well. You know, we make it hard in the United States. It's harder than in our peer competitive economies. It's much harder than it has to be. And COVID made it harder. I'm pissed. I am pissed that it's yeah, like this. It doesn't <laughs> have to be like this. And it's a choice. So so let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you write in your book, which is a beautiful book, you know, kind of a combination of your own story and really trying to understand, like, how did we get here? Why is it so hard in the United States? And why do we not understand it's so hard? Um, well, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, but I like it because I think there's, um, there's, you know, there's many ways in. Number one, I want to say, I think we spend a lot of time in the United States, and I think it's all a distraction to the way we hold up mothering and motherhood as some sort of sacred act, right? Like, and it is, there is something I think objectively holy about caring for people and caring for ourselves. I, I believe that care work is the most essential work that people do. Um, but we don't value that actual day in, day out sort of unglamorous work, which is a lot of picking food up off the floor, wiping butts, like, right, washing dishes, you know, those are things that we we hide away, right, under like the domestic, the private. I think both of us want to like bring that out into light, which is like, this is, this is the work that makes all other work possible. But I think a lot of our American culture is really sort of um, in service and um, romanticizing and sort of smearing Vaseline over the camera lens of, of mothering and um, like fetishizing it in a way that is so unrealistic, right? And so it becomes a standard that we hold people to, but it's all an idea. And so much of American life in that sense is a myth, right? Mothering doesn't look holy. It's down and dirty. You know, like my daughter's in public school, right? And, you know, school gets out at 2.30. And I think about how this is how it is for people across the country. And all of that is based on this idea. It's a myth that there's someone at home full time and there's somebody out in the world, you know, working like nine to five, but there's always someone to pick up a child at 2.30. And that's what I mean. Like, I think we live under these ideals that are just, they're unrealistic. And they, if they were ever true, they're not true now. You know, one of the other things that you point out in your book that's kind of, kind of continuing on the same theme, and it's one thing that just drives me 
bats. And it's, 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 it really drives a lot of the work that I do at the Better Life Lab. You know, it's this notion that if you're not there to pick up your child at 2.30, it's your fault. There's something wrong with you. And, you know, you've written and talked about mother guilt. And, you know, that's certainly something I experienced, particularly when my kids were young. And it, nobody understands how structural this is. I was trying to understand, wow, why do we not have better childcare in these, in the United States? And I always felt like it was my fault, you know, that, that really I should be home with my kids, that there was such huge guilt around that. And I remember being shocked to find out we almost did have a universal childcare system, high quality, easily accessible, affordable to all on a sliding scale in the 1970s. And it was Pat Buchanan who killed it. You know, and he convinced Richard Nixon to veto this bipartisan bill. And so I went to talk to Pat Buchanan and I, uh, you know, just to say, like, well, you really screwed my life. What the hell were you thinking? And it was interesting. He said, you know, that our, 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 our goal was to not just kill the bill, but was to kill the very idea of child care in the United States because every mother should be home with cake and pie to greet their children at three o'clock. So when you said that about the about, you know, the the bus coming home at, you know, the bus at two thirty and the expectation that somebody that you or a mother particularly would be there to meet the child, that is mythology. And yet that drove a political decision that has affected millions and millions of people for decades. And it's still driving that. Too, I think, you know, like that's the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about um, just really at the top of how we say we like love mothers. We're all about family values. Right. Meanwhile, we're in a moment. I mean, we've been in a moment, but now it's becoming, you know, with the, the, the fall of Roe. But we've seen this coming for years. You know, for the last two years, something happens in the Supreme Court. And then we we go out in March and people donate to Planned Parenthood and abortion funds. And then we all kind of go back and wait for the next shoe to drop, and then we all are angry again. But now I really think, like, we're seeing what is the, like, what has been coming, this violent end to um, the right to abortion and abortion access, which is already inaccessible to so many poor people of color in the South. Um, but I think about that a lot, how we say that we we care about mothers and families, but we're forcing people into motherhood against their will, which is really forcing people into poverty, right? And this idea of like this, this Pat Buchanan, I mean, it's so, it's so sinister <laughs> and um, it's so cruel, but they've always been really clear. Like there's no confusion, like that's their agenda and they've been driving under it. And yes, it's a myth and yes, it's cruel, but it's, um, it's successful. It really does feel like this nefarious and brilliant plot, you know, it's like, where's my red robe, you know? But, you know, just the other day, I got got a call from a young woman, or it actually was a text. She's like, I'm on the metro. I'm in tears. She's pregnant. She's got a little kid at home. Um, you know, she was working from home beautifully once, once she had care set up again, you know, certainly not beautifully when she was trying to do both all at the same time. And she said, you know, uh, and I've just been ordered back into the office. And she was able to do her work digitally beautifully. And still the the order came back in from a male boss saying, everybody back in, we're, you know, we're an in-person culture without working with the team and trying to figure out if that was actually true or how to experiment. And then what she said to me, just that, it just it just killed me. She said, well, maybe I just expect too much. You know, maybe I should, you know, it was hard for my mother. It was hard for your generation. 
and maybe maybe I should just suck it up. And I just said, no, no. She was feeling like it was her fault once again. I'm worried that there was this, you know, this awakening, this, you know, care awakening, if you will. Uh, and, and yet now we're going back into our itemized silos that you write about. We're all in these like individual silos. We're going back into like, oh, I don't have you know, there's nothing I can do. I've got to go back into the office. Uh, you know, it's it's my fault. I don't deserve anymore. Oh, I mean, that just, that's so devastating to me. And like to that person and everyone. And I mean, I'm not going to say that I've never felt that way, you know? And again, that's like the system crushing me, which is what it's like, what it's designed to do. And what I want to say to that is like, I think we're in this moment. And I, I guess I... I want to say that, you know, I voted in the Biden administration because they were talking about things like paid leave. They were talking about codifying Roe v. Wade, right? And I felt very hopeful about that. And we had the child, the advanced child tax credit, which was benefiting families, right? So I did have this feeling of hope. And now I that because the administration has failed to make good on those promises, I'm feeling kind of defeated, right? And like, did I... I, I expected more from these politicians and is, was that my fault, right? Like, I can actually relate to that moment. And so I think um, I want to, like, hang out here, <laughs> like, on the metro with this woman because I think as we're having this conversation, it's really important for us to say no. Um, we have every right to expect these things. We actually should be demanding these things. Like, we need to expect more. Um, and it's hard to do that. It is true. It's like the culture is not set up. Like, this is a long fight. I think that's what I'm reckoning with. But I can't think of a more important one to be in. So in this sense, like this conversation that we're having is like, it's frustrating to me. And we've been focusing on the things that are really hard. But it's also a balm to me because like, I'm never going to stop talking about this. Like once that we once we've seen this, so many of us have seen it. And even though we're like busy and overwhelmed and going back to the office, because we have to make a living like we need money. I get questions from people like, how do we change this? Like, I don't want this. I know that this is unsustainable. Like, we know that this is unsustainable. And so that's where I think like, that's where our conversation should go from here. Like, it's, I don't have all the answers. You know, you're doing this work, like we're trying to figure it out. But like, what happens next is we have to, um, we have to share our stories, we have to, um, you know, really be honest about what our needs are, and to think about how we can support each other. And I mean, I think collective action is a way forward. But I also think the, the real thing is, is talking about it and naming these issues. I mean, all mothers are working mothers, you know, whether they work outside of the home or not. But I also think about as 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 so many women and mothers are navigating, you know, going back to work and how do we handle all of this? I think a lot about caregivers, you know, child care workers in America. The majority of them are women of color and the majority of them are also mothers themselves, you know, which begs the question, like, who's taking care of their kids when when they're working and taking care of our kids? We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Angela and myself, check out our Slate Plus segment. Angela and I are going to talk about the subhead of her book, Mothering as Social Change. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the site, 
and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to The Waves. So, Angela, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, I guess what's called unpaid care, care that mothers, uh, parents, caregivers give in the home. You know, but the other thing that the pandemic really showed in this care crisis, we've known about it, but finally other people started to pay attention to the fact that we've got a care crisis with paid caregivers. So many of them, you know, they're essential workers, uh, and yet they make poverty wages. One in two earn so little that they qualify for public benefits. Yeah, I believe the median wage for child care workers is $26,000. i am not entirely sure it's something close to that, which is really like... We know that's that's not enough to live on. And most of these women are mothers themselves. So, you know, who, again, I ask, who is taking care of their children? And so when I think about this, one of the, th- I don't know if you get asked this question, but I get asked a lot, especially in the pandemic, when all of us, you know, this is the individual families and nuclear families siloed off. People were like, how do I connect with other mothers? Like, I'm desperate for this. And like, we should be like a very powerful political block. Like, we could be a voting block. Like, but how do we like, how do we organize and how do we find solidarity? And it's a great question. And I am always like celebrating the spirit of that question. But, you know, my answer to that is that actually, I think that we need to be looking to other places for solidarity. We're kind of so used to seeing ourselves in others, but um, we're not as good as seeing like others in ourselves. <laughs> and I think that's particularly true when it comes to caregivers and nannies and the people like who work in our homes. And to realize like these are again like mothers working outside of their home who's taking care of their kids and to realize like we are really no different from the people that we hire to do this work. And so I think it's about building solidarity, which is then becomes 
you know, cross-racial solidarity. It becomes cross-class solidarity. Um, and, you know, there are people who have been working on this issue for a long time. I think about the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who's like still, they're still on Capitol Hill every day talking to senators, insisting on the, like, essential nature of domestic workers and care workers. Um, and I so admire their leadership and their work on this, which has been going on for well over a decade. Um, so there, there are opportunities for solidarity. And I actually think that if we, as people who are privileged enough to outsource care work and domestic labor, if we can you know, join that movement and support living wages for essential laborers and workers' rights, you know, that's a huge win. <laughs> and it also, I think we're a ways off from this, but it does bring us one step closer to asking for those things for parents and mothers. As I said, like, I really believe collective action is important um, and solidarity. And I think it is great to have solidarity with your peers, you know, and the people who form your community, but realizing that your community is also made up of the people who um, work for you and who you employ and feeling that sense of responsibility to them and that solidarity with them is a very um that's a very rich vein for political work that I think we have not yet tapped. Well, that's so interesting that you talk about that, because that's really what I want to dig into. The, you know, the idea of mothering is social change, like you talk about in your book. And we know things are hard and they need to change. And how do we get to that change? Um, you know, it's so interesting that you talk about the importance of, of solidarity, because one of the things that you know, feminism, I think very rightly has been criticized for is that, you know, you think about lean in, that's a very white kind of corporatist kind of view. Um, I get to lean into my corner office. Who's helping you do that? And how are they having it all? How are they combining work and care? And so in a way, I do feel like the pandemic has sort of kind of taken the blinders off of people that you can't have, and you should never have had just that kind of like rarefied elitist kind of argument, that it's a much stronger movement when you see that everybody is in it together and that the goal is that everybody gets to find their own way to combine work and care in a meaningful way, because that's what gives our lives meaning. And so sometimes I do despair that we're really far from that. It does feel like there was a moment or there is a moment that we can at least build on Infor those informal networks. Yes. And actually, you know, I'm so glad you said this because I actually, I felt like a heart swell as you were talking about that. Um, because it, it's, it gives me like warm, fuzzy feelings because yes, like it is about lifting everyone up, right? I'm old enough to remember like when Barack Obama was running from president and we were talking about a rising tide lifts all boats. Like that was not that long ago. And so we, I want us to go back to that moment. You know, like I think about how, I'm so sorry to do this, but I saw a tweet. <laughs> I saw a tweet on Instagram that said, <laughs> but it said, Psst, there is no radical left. It's just people caring about other people. And I, you know, that really hit me. Um, even in my like mindless scroll, I've, I've held on to that idea. And when you talk about feminism, I think it's worth saying like the feminism that you're talking about is mainstream white feminism, right? And we hear a lot, and I talk, I take this up in the book. So we hear a lot about Betty Friedan, right? And the feminine mystique and the idea that was preached was women find meaning outside of the home, right? Which is, which is a great thing to encourage people to do, right? Like we are complex individuals. But 
white feminism of that time never reckoned with domestic labor never goes away. And, you know, there is something that you said at the very top of like, why is it that we are comfortable like not valuing this and keeping it invisible? And I, I mean, I think the larger issue here is that our country, the, the wealth of the United States was built on slavery, right? The home has always been a site of work for black women in America. And so in the 1960s, when, you know, white women were like, I'm going to go lean in, <laughs> even though we didn't have that name for it yet, we brought black women back into the home, you know, and then we brought Latinx women and then we brought Asian women into the home to do this work because in America, we've never reckoned with, like, we see this work as being less than and it's the work of women of color. I mean, that's that's the truth, Right. But when you're talking about, like, how do we solve this? What, one of the great things that I learned in my book is that there is a longstanding tradition of feminism that we just don't hear about that is inclusive, right? That is solution-oriented, that is about, like, being a true rising tide to lift all boats, right? And I'm talking about the National Welfare Rights Organization led by Black women like Johnny Tillman, um, who, when faced with the same circumstances – as Betty Friedan, like they, they were working to, you know, welfare at that time was called AFDC, Aid for Families and Dependent Children. And it was a very like punitive system, like it was mainly black women who were the beneficiaries of it. So National Welfare Rights Organization was really, they were successful in um, lessening those punitive um, terms of AFDC and welfare. And they also made it possible for more people to access these benefits. But their answer to this to the situation they were in was actually something that almost also happened under Nixon which is to have a guaranteed annual income for everyone not just for poor people but for everyone in America and then that way you could do whatever you wanted right and women in the home would be paid for the work that they were already doing right so this is like that was already happening right and then there's Wages for housework, which was happening in the 60s and 70s. And that was like to pay women for the housework that they were doing and to re recognize again that the, the home is not a private refuge. It's a work site. These ideas are here. I think they are very ripe for revisitation and reconsideration because if black women and women of color in America were to get free, we would all be free. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic. Same time, same place. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.